0: Are GPs becoming lazy? This is a big one. Apparently 45% of Jews, I say apparently, but according to the, a GMC survey, which is the General Medical Council survey, 45% of GPs are working less than full time. So this person was convicted of violating a government ban by carrying out his own experiment on human embryos. He was globally condemned when he announced his experiments and the birth of twin babies last November. aight boom let's get started shall we welcome boys and girls to the greatest show on planet earth maybe i shouldn't start 2020 the new year and the new decade with a lie because let's be honest it's not exactly the greatest show on planet earth but it is however the greatest podcast in the south of england vicinity run by a medical student on the world of health slash medicine Actually, that's not a bad intro. It covers about everything. It tells you um, who it is, where it's from, and what it's about. So, I hope any of you new listeners out there got a quick intro into a little bit about myself, as well as about the podcast. Old listeners, I hope you're all good. There won't be a lot of you. There was like four of you in the previous season. So, maybe one of you is back yeah thank you for sticking around i am back in the new year and the new decade like i said i thought i would actually make sure and post more consistently this time around because you know i had a period of time where i was posting like once a week i moved it once every two weeks and then i haven't posted like the last three months it wasn't entirely my fault but not gonna lie i was a bit lazy because Uni started, and you know, because while I was recording, it was like during the summer holidays between first year and second year, and our second year started. It's not like I was busy doing work, but I was busy just spending time with friends and you know, spending time at uni, <coughs> which I definitely could have cut down to not only do work but also you know, record the podcast. But uh, you know, like I said, it's gonna be new year, new me, and I'm gonna start this decade off with a bang, and that's why I'm here recording the podcast early in the morning with my morning voice i hope you guys do enjoy it um let me give you a quick run through through the podcast um we start off with breaking news then we move on to uh an ethical topic that i want to discuss this week and then perhaps a myth to do with the world of health and medicine and all that jazz and then we end with word of the week and you know Depending on the week and depending on what we're talking about, there might be a few special segments in between. You just have to wait and uh, see if you enjoy it. Alright, also, I should add a quick disclaimer. Um, definitely, don't new listeners definitely don't have to go back and listen to the old season of the Basic Medic podcast. The old season was just um, quite dreadful in terms of sound quality. Um, there was even a point where I was scripting every word I was saying because I was unsure how it's gonna sound and I'm unsure of just putting together basic sentences so yeah it's not great and I would not recommend to anyone but more importantly the the segment I mentioned earlier about word of the week I'm most likely going to repeat the words I use in season one because I could not be asked to go back and make sure I tick off the words I have used so From now on, I'll make sure that, you know, I have a list of all the words I'm using for word of the week every week. So each week will be different. But yeah, I can't promise about the previous season. So, yeah, um, like I said, don't go back and listen to it, (laughs) new listeners and old listeners. Thank you for sticking through me with it. But yeah, this season will 100% be better. And it'll be better organized, better produced. And if you be out once every two weeks, because that'll give you more than that'll give me more than enough time to research, record, edit and also make sure I'm up to date with all my all my social media pages check out my twitter and facebook both at the basic medic and yeah let's get straight into this podcast I say straight into it I've been waffling on for like the last five minutes but you know this is a good time as any In this week's breaking news, we have flu-like illnesses up by 25% due to delays from a major pharmaceutical company. Royal Derby Hospital introduced the first ever disposable steroid hijabs in the UK. And GPs shun full-time work as precious take toll. Are they getting lazy? Before we get into any of that, let's talk about the NHS being stuck in the dark ages with their god-awful IT system. Also, actually, I've just realised that this whole podcast is based around UK news and UK medicine and UK health. So, so much for it being called a podcast based around the world of health. Um, Actually, let's just rename it. This is the UK edition. That's right. I know you only found out about it like um, 10 minutes into the podcast, but here you go. It's the UK edition Season 2, Episode 1 of the Basic Medic Podcast. Alright, let's get back to complaining about the NHS, because that's what we love to do in this country, don't we? And, um, however, this time, there will be actually something positive there, NHS and our Lord and Saviour, Matt Hancock, has done to improve the situation. Maybe, like, 10-15 years late, but, you know, they've done something, and as much as we criticise and complain, we should also recognise the positives. So what's happened? As I mentioned, NHS has been stuck in the dark ages. And what, what do I mean by that? It essentially means that they've had an outdated IT system, which gives NHS staff with 15 different computer logins. And this means that doctors have to use different usernames and passwords for an array of different systems that they have to access on a daily basis from ev- to do everything from ordering x-rays, getting lab results, to accessing any records and rotors. Imagine how annoying that is. I can barely remember my username and password to log into my laptop. Imagine 15 different computer logins and you have to use that on a daily basis. Obviously, over time, you will get better and you'd probably remember four or five a bit more. But imagine remembering 15 different. It can only get very frustrating and confusing, but also extremely time consuming. Well, they're spending around $40 next year to help hospitals and clinics introduce single system logins. So what does that mean? That essentially means that you only have one username and one password for all the different systems for each doctor, slash clinician, slash nurse, or whoever works in the hospital and needs access to the different systems. Alright, so why did they not just introduce it five or ten years ago? Well they could have, yep, yeah, and it would have it would have been made a lot easier. But there's also a lot more nuances and things you have to consider. Because obviously when there's just one login, security risk also becomes infinitely higher and also you also need to make sure that each person who has access to different systems or has a login that can access different systems. You restrict it so that not everyone can see everything, right? Because you have to make sure that certain doctors can only see their own patient records and don't access to other people's patient records unless it's been sent over to them. And there's also a lot of confidentiality issues. So you have to ensure that all of those have been sorted. So it's not exactly black and white as using one login and using loads of logins. You have to make sure that one login gives a person only access to the things that they should be allowed to see. So yeah it makes sense why it costs 40 million first of all and why it's taken it's a natural progression to go from lots of logins to one login however i can't exactly um, give you a reason for why it's taken this long but nevertheless like i said focus on the positives and they have however made a difference and made a change which is fantastic and matt hancock Says it's time to get the basics right. It's frankly ridiculous how much time our doctors and nurses waste logging onto multiple systems. Often, outdated technology slows down and frustrates staff. And you can't be too right about that because I'm sure we understand that from just our daily lives without having to be involved in the healthcare profession in any way, shape or form. Um, so let's see how, how much this has actually improved this single system login. And we can actually have a case study because over the hay, which is a hospital in Liverpool is one of the number of different firms/um GPs hospitals that have already done this and found it's reduced time spent logging in from 1 minute 45 seconds to just 10 seconds and with almost 5000 logins per day it saved over 130 hours of staff time to focus on patient care imagine that 130 hours that's like that's ridiculous obviously it's like an accumulation and each staff saves like a minute 45 for the 15 difference so what's that which is like half an hour half an hour a day and half an hour a day does go a long way because that means that you can get that extra blood test done that extra x-ray done or um, even just provide the patient with that extra five minutes of time which will go a long way so on top of you know just making sure that the Single system login is introduced. They've also set up a new agency called NHSX to drive forward progress on technology and to make sure that in the coming years we have a great use of artificial intelligence AI, and we have a closer integration of social care and NHS records. However, Adam Brimlow of NHS providers says that this single system login alone is not enough. Although it's a good step in the right direction, he. He thinks that wider IT system needs investment and improved, and it, the whole infrastructure as a whole should be made a lot better because in areas such as mental health, community services, and ambulance trust, um, the staff normally work in remote locations, so they have to make sure they have access to the different patient records. Which means that, like I said, if the infrastructure is improved, it would make it would make easier access from a remote location to the bank of information we have back at the servers in the NHS and <clears throat> another very surprising piece of information that shows that the NHS really was stuck in the dark ages was that it's only this year that the government has demanded the NHS phase out the use of fax machines the NHS will be banned from buying fax machines from next month and has been told by the government to phase out the machines entirely by 31st March 2020 I was extremely surprised, and I'm sure a lot of you people listening out there don't even know what a fax machine is. Whoa, what's that? Whoa, whoa. Sorry to interrupt your regular news programming with a brand new segment of the podcast called Outdated and Redundant Technology in the NHS, the fax machine edition. Now, let's talk about how do you actually use it and how does it work? Well, imagine like a printer type of object and essentially you put the document that you're about to send into the document feed which is like putting paper into the printing tray and then you essentially type a dedicated fax phone number and this is the number that you want to... or this is the fax machine that you want to send this particular document to so you have to ask for their phone number. Now, important thing to remember here is that it's quite long and yeah it's uh something you should remember for for later on in the podcast when i talk about you know the negatives of using it other than it being 100 years old but yeah after that you press the fax send button or go ahead and scan the documents in and then you hear characteristic noises afterwards also known as a handshake which basically just means that fact machines are just chatting to each other discussing the speed they can send and receive and etc And so your document gets scanned, you get it back, and that information gets sent to another fax machine, and that essentially takes paper and prints out everything that was in this document into there. And in that form, communication is sent from one area to another, and one document is sent to another area. And that's all we have from this week's edition of Outdated and Redundant Technology in the NHS. (laughs) i hope you guys enjoyed that little segment not gonna lie i had no idea what a fax machine was until i had to do research on this but you know the more you learn and the more you know this segment will probably never come back but knowing the nhs who knows they're going to tell us they're still using those phones that you have to um push it around in a circle you know, I'm talking about, you know, the ones where you put your finger through the hole and that sounds a bit inappropriate, but you put, you know, the dial dial up phones. Yeah, great. Kind of messed up the, the joke there, but, you know, we move and we learn. <laughs> OK, anyways, back to it, back to fax machines and how they're phasing it out. You might be surprised at just how many fax machines are currently in use in the NHS. Uh, Royal College of Surgeons revealed about 9,000 fax machines are still used all across England. In place of fax machines, the Department of Health, like any normal person, said secure email should be used. And the group's report from earlier this year found that use of fax machines was most common at Newcastle-upon-Tyne, the NHS Trust, which relied on 603 machines. Especially Rebecca McIntyre from Manchester, who works as a cognitive behavioural therapist, said fax machines are a continued risk to the confidentiality and safeguarding of patients. We've constantly received fax meant for other places in error, but this is never report- reported. reported. Might be thinking, Oh, how do you just send it to the wrong place? Well, if you remember the piece of information in the segment earlier, there is a very long dedicated fax phone number. So it's very easier very easier easy. To you know incorrectly press a number and yeah send it to the wrong fax machine when it comes to confi- confidential information about patients it, it can cause a lot of uproar and um, yeah it can't, it can't look good for anyone because the last thing you need is patient details being leaked it's not only very personal but uh yeah the patient would not want that and it will cause a lot of suing now you might be thinking even with the email people can make mistakes but it's let's be honest a lot less likely because realistically you're gonna be typing something like um i don't know if you're gonna send it to queen mary's hospital you'd be like um i don't know i don't know what the email is but queen mary hospital at com. so <coughs> it's not hard to make sure you're spelling words correctly um, and especially an area where you want to send it to. So it's a lot less likely that you make a mistake rather than a random 10 digit number that you have to remember and make sure you type in correctly. And also, um, let's think about the environment. It's just paper being sent and printed on the other end. Like if it's an email, it's all online, it's all on a server, it can be accessed from anywhere, and it's a lot faster. And yeah, like I said, the environment. Save the world. You know, with um, the whole Australia fires going on every little helps, all those trees getting burned down by just using less fax machines, we are saving a hell of a lot of paper. However, you know, fax machines, although are awful and definitely should be removed, Tim Owen from Bolton does bring up a good point. He works in blood services and asks, so what happens when a computer virus attacks a hospital's IT infrastructure? The outdated and redundant piece of equipment would still be usable um, in contrast to all the computers and email systems and servers that we have already built and therefore in those situations would be key to make sure patient treatment is not compromised. However, my counter-argument is that that's not necessarily a reason why we should keep fax machines. That's more of a reason that we should improve um, the security and the firewall system at the NHS and make sure that even if one area is attacked, the other areas are still intact. So that we have to make, so essentially we have to make sure that um, each area of the NHS is able to communicate with another, but they have different security systems so that you can never take down the NHS as a whole, only one area at a time at the very least. So yeah, there's there's other ways to go around it rather than using fax machines, Tim Owen, but yeah. Um, I do understand his point, and it's a very valid thing, because in the off chance, although it will be very small, but like I said, if they set up the NHS like I said, you know, because I'm a genius, clearly, um, then there will be less of a chance. But even then, there is a very, very minute chance <coughs> that all the whole IT system could come crashing down, and the NHS will be unusable, and in those situations, we will need these fax machines. So maybe don't completely get rid of it, just go put it in the story system that people stop using it, because let's be honest, we need to stop. Uh, move out of the the 20th century we are in fact in the 21st especially in 2020 um also another point is that a gp in the midland said that i currently rely on fax machine for requesting x-rays at local hospitals because there's an ongoing it problem which has not been fixed which is odd which is again like uh a mistake from from the nhs side and they should be making more of an effort to fix it problems when and where it happens and to be honest with that fax machines maybe those response will be even faster because it become even more of an issue because if you don't solve it then and there then there's no other method because fax machines are removed then maybe it can cause a, a more rapid response perhaps you never know so yeah i'm definitely against using fax machines and i think um yeah i think the nhs and matt hancock have come up with a very Good few suggestions in removing um fax machines and introducing single system logins. Alright, on to our next story of the Fortnite because you know it's meant to be two weeks, not the game, because Fortnite is also another meeting for two weeks. Alright. Okay. i don't know why i was being so harsh there but um let's get into it gp consultations for flu-like illnesses were up a quarter to nearly seven thousand five hundred visits in the week ending 8 december as you can see i did this research quite some time ago because this is getting released in like the second week of january so let's say mm, it's more of like the news from the last month i thought it was still interesting so yeah let's get let's get into it grandparents visiting their grandchildren could particularly be at risk they say as children are super spreaders of flu over 65 are one of the at-risk groups and can develop health complications such as pneumonia if they catch it now what is pneumonia for um, those of you who don't know it's an infection that inflames the air sacs in one or both lungs air sacs as you can imagine is where air goes into the lungs and helps us breathe and the air sacs may fill with, fill with fluid or pus causing cough with phlegm or pus, fever chills and difficulty breathing. As you can imagine, if those air sacs are filled up, less air will be taken into them, and therefore making breathing a lot harder. Now, an important thing here to remember is that over sixty-five have actually had a free flu jab more than this time last year, which means that it just means that more elderly people are getting a flu jab. However, coverage among two to three year olds is lagging behind previous seasons. Following delays in delivery of the nasal flu vaccine, because as you remember from our little breaking news segment earlier on, there was a pharmaceutical company which supplied vaccines to NHS that was in fact delayed, and this delays have now been resolved. But school programs will not take place now until January. So school programs just just when um, uh, doctors or um, healthcare professionals go into the school and make sure that everyone gets their flu jab through nasal spray, I guess because in this particular scenario that's what was delayed and um, the pharmaceutical company in question is AstraZeneca which supplies like I said vaccines to NHS and it said it needed to repeat some tests before a portion of their vaccine supply can be released and delivered and the delay could affect or it did affect about a quarter of the overall vaccine ordered And that makes perfect sense because the flu-like illnesses were up by a quarter, which shows just how important these pharmaceutical companies are and how something like as simple as um, just running tests again can cause uh, very, not catastrophic, because nothing awful has happened, but it does increase the risks of um, flu and cold and being ill and all these symptoms to increase rapidly. So... Although it's perfectly understandable that they need to repeat some tests and it's better that they do that rather than give something that could cause a lot more side effects and a lot more harm than do any good. So it's definitely understandable but perhaps, you know, I'm not saying what pharmaceutical companies should do and shouldn't do, I definitely don't want to get sued out here but a a helpful suggestion could perhaps be, you know, make sure that they have multiple batches ready and um, they have multiple different teams testing them so that um the process a lot faster but to be honest they probably still have all of that and and i'm sure you know something out of their hand went wrong because like i said they are a massive pharmaceutical company and i'm sure they know a lot better than me now i thought now would be a good time to talk about cold and flu because in fact they are two different things the symptoms are similar but flu is usually a lot more severe flu symptoms come on quicker within a few hours it affects more than just your nose and throat whereas cold you know gives you a bit of runny nose and a bit of a sore throat flu makes you exhausted makes you unwell to carry on as normal it almost gives you like an extremely high fever you have to stay in bed you can't get out you vomit a lot so yeah, that's more like flu whereas cold is just a bit of a runny nose you can still get along with your day you'll just be a bit stuffed up and perhaps a bit annoyed so for most people flu lasts for like a few days and they get better after some rest at home So, how can you guys reduce the risk of spreading flu? I'm sure you've seen enough campaigns and enough posters on how to do this, but I thought, you know, it's always good for some positive reinforcement. So, make sure you use tissues to trap germs when you cough or sneeze. Very simple. Wash your hands, often with warm water and soap. So, you know... um, I know usually people just you know quickly wash their hands but before they eat. They don't use warm water and soap. So yeah, this is just another suggestion that could easily be used, including me. I should definitely take this on board. And uh, I only use warm water and soap if I've been out playing a sport or something. On the average day, when I'm just sitting on my laptop, I'll just go wash my hands and start eating. But yeah, and been used tissues as quickly as possible. So yeah, very um, easy to understand, easy to follow things that can make a massive improvement. So I hope you guys take it on board and I don't want to find out about any of my listeners being ill because I've given you the information to make sure you're not. But yeah. (coughs) Our next story is actually a, a very wholesome one. You know, it's a very positive improvement that should have been made a long time ago. But, like I said, once again, remember the positives. It's amazing that it's been implemented now, and it gives um, access to uh, a wider variety of people, a minority. So, yeah, let's get into it. So Royal Derby Hospital introduced disposable sterile hijabs, and it believes it's the first in the UK to introduce disposable sterile headscarves for staff to use in operating theatres. As you can imagine, doctors wear a headscarf all day which isn't very clean or hygienic so it makes sense and is very understandable that more often than not these doctors are pulled out of theatres due to infection control and as you can imagine this can be very frustrating as they have to um, obviously wear the scarf due to their face but they have a passion for being in the operating theatre and this is where Miss Rosalind comes in. Miss Rosalind is a creator of the disposable sterile hijabs and she says that she wants to find a middle ground between this dress code duty faith and the passion for being an operating theatre. So how does she start? She starts by looking to Malaysia, the country of her birth. Sorry about that, I hope that didn't get picked up on camera but my stomach did rumble. But anyway, Miss Rosalind looked to Malaysia, the country of her birth, for ideas before creating a design and testing fabrics. And she create managed to create a headscarf all by herself. Something that should be done by the government realistically, but if she managed to create a headscarf that doesn't cost much, and the effect would be enormous. And University Hospitals of Derby and Burton NHS Trust, the new headscarves will be available to use for the first time earlier in December. Once again, this is the news from the past month. But yeah, I thought it was an amazing story. I'm just upset that it wasn't introduced on a more wider scale and it wasn't taken hold by the government. It had to be someone uh, an in, an individual had to go out of their way to ensure this happened. But massive props to her because she saw a problem and she found out a solution to fix it. She didn't just complain about it and make a huge deal out of it. She found out what she could do to um increase the opportunities for people who follow the faith of Islam. Um I hope it inspires some of you to see to, you know, perhaps make changes in there. In their own life or own workplace that's very annoying or irritating that they don't have to rely on other people if you just go out there and try to do it yourself and um hopefully if it's a good enough change people hire up who um will notice your contribution and take it on board and actually implement those changes because although the nhs government as a whole haven't implemented it the university hospitals of derby and burton nhs like i've said have um allow these new headscarves to be available for use early in December. Are GPs becoming lazy? This is a big one. Apparently, 45% of Jews, I say apparently, but according to a GMC survey, which is the General Medical Council survey, 45% of GPs are working less than full time, with a third cutting their hours in the past year. Now, this sounds awful, right? Because it means that they're working a lot less and perhaps this is where the 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 brand comes that perhaps gps are becoming more lazy but in fact contrary to popular opinion gps most of them work around two to four hours more a day unpaid just because they're backlogged with the amount of people that come in and out of sur- in and out of the surgery and this means that even though they are working what is called part time they're doing full time hours but getting paid half the price which makes se- which makes sense why they wouldn't want to work full-time because it means that their workload would then infinitely be increased even more so at this current level of workload it's simply not safe to have gps working five days per week so if anything people who are working five days the other s- what's 55 um, percent of gps should perhaps be told to you know take more of a break but then again you know with our current situation with uh with the lower amount of healthcare professionals in terms of doctors GPs, nurses, you need everyone working as hard as possible, but you have to ensure that the the chance of making very simple mistakes is in fact reduced so the days are non stop for them and they need constant med- mental alertness because and also they see a wide array of different people It's not like in a hospital where uh, someone coming for e n t air nose and throat will only be um you'd only be looking at someone with problems around that area which not necessarily makes it easier but um, in some ways it means that um, they could be more ignorant to other parts of the body where, whereas GPs have to make sure that they're looking out for every possible scenario because they are the initial and primary um, port of contact and they would then refer people onto hospitals for more specialised services so in some in some aspects they have to be Um, more alert than you're a doctor in a hospital. So how did the government, as always, attempt to improve the situation? They set a target to recruit 6,000 extra GPs by 2025 in England. But in 2015, the government sort of set something similar. They set a target of increasing the number of full-time equivalents by 5,000 by 2020. Lo and behold, we're in 2020... And I can say we are nowhere near um, that number. You would think perhaps maybe we're halfway there. You would be wrong. Maybe we're, um, I don't know, a third of the way there. Again, you will be wrong because there was only an increase of 272 new GPs between 2015 and 2018. Which, as I can say is ridiculous because, imagine setting a target for 5,000 but in three years, so more than half of the time there, we've uh, recruited less than 10% of the number of people that they want to recruit. Actually, just over, just over 5%. So we have, as you can imagine, 2018, they realized they were very far away from the target. And obviously by 2020, I can imagine we are nowhere near that number. I mean it's not entirely bad to aim high. I guess it's that famous saying shoot for the what is it shoot for the sun and fall among the stars in this particular scenario we've um, shot for the <laughs> for the nearest galaxy and um fell on top of your local corner shop <laughs> anyways, let's move on um they're seeing more patients with more complex needs, which involves higher expectation of what primary care can do for them which again i'm just showing you how gps jobs are becoming more difficult nowadays which involves them becoming um what well, involving them to become more attentive more alert and also working a lot more hours because as you can imagine although they say it's meant to be a 10 minute consultation it can drag and get to about 15 20 minutes i would know uh my parents high many people that i know have done the same thing Going for one problem, ask about three more. So yeah, to break the cycle of workforce shortages, we need a clear plan, clear plan in all four countries of the UK for a sustainable increase in the number of GPs. An important thing to remember: the GPs are most likely to work part time, as well as are most likely to report dissatisfaction in their working lives. Now, among medicals, this was quite surprising for me because, um, like, while we're in. In medical school, we think GPs are um, perhaps uh, the the best place to go and work because, as you can imagine, it's more set working hours. The ideal thing is that you'd have time afterwards to chill. You just have to be in one place. It's less running around. It's um, for someone who wants to build a family. The idea is that it's a lot more easier and better. So me reading something like. It's more likely that a GP would re- report dissatisfaction with working lives. It's very surprising, and perhaps I should rethink my future plans. <coughs> One in ten have to take time off work because of stress, and even when doctors reduce their hours, they aren't just you know chilling at home or not doing anything. Most of the time, they contribute to patient care in other methods through education, research, or leadership roles. So I guess my point is, GPs. Are definitely overworked and it makes sense that taking part-time because full-time is a very difficult thing at agps who um who do manage to do it hats off to you so yeah keep doing the great work and hopefully we'll get to a point where the nhs is better funded and we have more doctors and people are less overworked <coughs> okay so that's our breaking news done for this week's podcast but now we move on to our ethical topic, which is in fact very similar to breaking news, but in this case it's more of a a controversial issue. Where I'm going to tell you a bit more about the situation and give you my opinion, if you care. But I'm guessing you do. Otherwise, you would have listen this far in. So yeah. <laughs> Alright, enough waffle. Let's get into this week's ethical topic. So China, China jails gene edited babies. No. Oh, God, I've already started with a mistake. China jails scientists for gene editing babies. Um, and jails this person for three years. But trust me, once you hear the story, they should have been jailed for a hell of a lot longer. So the person convicted was called He Jiankui. They should refer to him as Ki- He because as you can... As you can hear my pronunciation is absolutely awful and I would rather not keep doing it and, pr- and just causing more offence. So, this person was convicted of violating a government ban by carrying out his own experiment on human embryos. He was globally condemned when he announced his experiments and the birth of twin babies last November. However, recently it's been revealed that it's actually a third baby also born at the same time, which previously was not confirmed. As well as his prison sentence, he was fined. 3 million yuan, which is about $430,000 and £328,000. The court also handed lower mm-hmm. sentences to two men, uh, Zhang Renli and Qin Zhu. I thought I was going to co- <laughs> I wasn't going to cause more offense, but I guess I have. For <laughs> well, conspiring with he to carry out these experiments. So what exactly did he do? I have to explain that he gene-edited babies, but what does that mean? And yeah, um, what was his aim? So, gene editing in human embryos still involves, as you can imagine, various unresolved technical issues which may lead to unforeseen risks and violates the consensus of the international scientific community. So, essentially, it's getting the embryo of a baby and changing certain, um, certain components of its genetic makeup to create to create the desired result which whatever in this particular scenario he was trying to cure hiv sounds amazing right either way it's illegal and it shouldn't have been done but we'll get more into it so what did what did he do he recruited seven heterosexual couples he wanted children to take part in the study the men were all living with hiv while the women were not which doesn't really mean much, because just because a man has HIV doesn't mean the baby definitely would have. Whereas mm-hmm. with other way around, if the woman had HIV, there's a very high chance that the kid would have. So uh, the HIV is a human immunodeficiency virus, normally caused through um, sexual intercourse or sexual activity, and um, it eventually leads to AIDS, which basically means your immune system gets shut down, and um, it's very easy for you to get something as simple as a flu or a cold or even more um dangerous and wonderful range of diseases so yeah and as of right now we have fantastic treatments for hiv that reduces the viral count it doesn't completely cure it but it reduces the amount of virus in the body to uh uh un amount and prevents it from being transmitted to another person which is absolutely fantastic improvement but like i said it wasn't cured this person this professor thought that he was going to be the one to do it and how did he do it so he made embryos in ivf clinic and used gene editing technology to change a particular gene i'm gonna give you the name but honestly it doesn't matter it's called the ccr5 gene which is basically just a gene that hiv attaches that's all you need to remember forget the name to be honest you don't have to remember any of this <laughs> but it's just part of the story he then and this is very important he forged documents in order to pass a mandatory ethics review and fabricated ev- information and evidence so that medical doctors would unknowingly implant the gene-edited embryos into two women. Now, if the babies grew up to have children of their own, any genetic modification could be passed down through generations. He could have potentially created or introduced a lasting change to the human race. And he was um, in no means, however good his intentions were, um, should be allowed to do that, because who is he to be able to make these changes without um, everyone else having a say as well? Sure he might have the expertise or so he thought to be able to do it, but definitely does not mean you should be going out and doing things. There is a reason why um, as of right now it 's being banned because the technology isn 't there, and there's a lot of ethical issues and um ethical issues and problems surrounding it because once you start where do you stop because um although you can change this gene and then afterwards or someone wants something a bit different and then yeah maybe you get to a stage where people start editing their babies to create the perfect child the athlete the cleverest person in the world and then we've essentially created this snowball effect until we have um, um mandatory rules and um things set in place to allow gene to take place it should not be happening so what did he do he targeted he being yeah okay all right he targeted the corrected gene however he did not create the exact mutation associated with resistance to hiv instead he created previously unseen genetic edits edits the effects of which are currently unknown there have never been any studies on this specific mutation because they've never existed before, which is absolutely horrendous. So we have to wait till the babies grow a bit older to see what the effects of this is. But if it is horrible, it could be passed on to many generations. And to be frank, quite frank, it's absolutely awful that he's been given the opportunity to create such a lasting damage to these babies. Or we say damage, we don't know yet. But the fact that he could have is absolutely awful in itself. So yeah like I said hopefully you guys agree with me but he should be jailed for a lot longer than three years because he in some ways could have caused a deformity to this person and more importantly if he's only jailed three years it gives confidence to other people other scientists that it's not so bad like um if things go well then perhaps um they will not even get into jail so it gives people who chase for this pride to chase for this glory to be the one to cure something as as elusive as HIV, um, to carry on with those dreams and go about breaking rules and um, not, following, um, not following certain consensus to make sure we don't do certain things to um, reach that um, end goal and to push boundaries back, boundaries that shouldn't be pushed back. So perhaps in my, not perhaps, in my, in my opinion, he should have been made an example of and the sentence should be a lot longer including the fine because um I'm sure for him three million yuan isn't isn't um the craziest thing in the world. Alright, and now it's time for medical myth. I love this segment personally. Even loved it last last um year, slash decade, slash season as well because most of the time, I don't. I'm not actually aware of these myths either, either because it's very crazy and I'm surprised people believe it, or because it's something I believe myself. So, it's a very, um, it's a very useful process. Um, the researching for this and talking about it in general makes me feel a lot more educated, shall we say, and um, this this week's um, medical myth is actually very topical. It's about veganuary. That's right, vegans in January. Is the time of the year where um, large corporations take advantage of um, people trying to become more healthy, being vegan. For example, um, Greggs have just released a steak bake. If you guys haven't tried their vegan sausage roll, it's god tier. It's absolutely amazing. And I'll be giving you a very compre- comprehensive review on the steak bake once I've tried it. Hopefully um, by the time of the next podcast. But yeah, so more about Veganuary. As you can imagine, it's in the name. It's the month of January where a lot more vegans uh, or a lot more people um try the vegan diet and people becoming vegan are unaware of the need to combine sources of plant proteins because you don't get all your proteins from um, one type of of uh, plant product. So you have to make sure you have to combine different plant proteins to ensure you're getting all the different amino acids you need to um Make sure you have a healthy functioning body, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. More importantly, they need to be they need to ensure they have adequate levels of B twelve. I think a lot of people believe that this whole B twelve deficiency risk is more of a myth, and uh, it's not exactly it's not actually true. However, the diet is generally high in fiber and low in cholesterol, but some nutrients are hard to get you know, get hold of, including b12 i just need about 1.5 micrograms of b12 a day it's found in meat fish eggs and dairy products so basically all the things vegans cannot eat but not in fruits vegetables or grains so those eating a vegan diet are advised to have fortified foods like cereals or taking supplements so those of my listeners hoping to embark on the journey of veganuary um, i have two things to say to you make sure you have those fortified foods to ensure that you have a good supply of B twelve and also don't be obnoxious about it. <laughs> but yeah, um the good thing about B12 deficiency is that although it can lead to nerve damage it takes three or four years before it causes any significant symptoms, which I guess can be seen as a good or bad thing because by that time you've already created some damage and therefore if anything if it happened, if the symptoms were available sooner you can make the changes faster. But also the fact that it takes a long time before any significant effect is created. So the chance of someone becoming vegan during January and having any sort of life-changing effect is basically impossible. But yeah, anyone hoping to use Veganuary as a beginning of something new and start their life as a vegan, make sure you take um, tablets of B12, which you can find at any super drug store or pharmacy and um let's talk a bit more about symptoms it usually appears as pins and needles in the hands or feet um and don't worry it's not from just sitting cross-legged for a large period of time you're getting pins and needles that does not mean you have beta deficiency because if it did then i need to get myself checked out um so yeah so far the evidence suggests people who are vegan are less likely to be overweight and are less risk of type 2 diabetes and heart disease but one thing to remember and one important thing to consider is that there is limited data on the health effects of a vegan diet, with one UK and one US study covering around 10,000 people, which is not a lot by any stretch of the imagination, because when there's 7 billion people in the world, 10,000 is a very, very small, um, concise um, sample sample size and a very small study in the grand scheme of things. So... You know, I'm sure people who do Veganuary for um, saving the animals and all of those uh, moral reasons, I definitely understand and I'm sure they're prepared to go through the ups and downs of perhaps health struggle or the long-term negatives that could come from it. But um, people who are doing it to be more healthy, I'm going to be honest with you, there isn't any concrete evidence that it will definitely be good for you. Like I said, let's like to be overweight which is great fantastic but again it's only been done in a very small concise study and also important thing to remember is that they appear to have a higher risk of bone fracture and a recent study suggests an increased risk of hemorrhagic stroke okay this was not meant to um, uh, escalate into me scaring you guys but you can we definitely give it a go maybe you help you feel more energized and um, bit happier about life and make it feel like you're making a positive change to the world around you and yeah props to you and yeah go ahead and do it but like i said if you are doing it for a long period of time make sure you take your b12 tablets as people or vegans tend to believe that it's a myth but just because it takes three or four years and being vegan or this whole culture change or culture shock has only been of recent time perhaps in the last couple of years so it makes sense that like people believe this myth because people haven't taken B12 tablets over the last couple of years. Haven't really had any any uh, major problems. Because like I said, it takes you 3 or 4 years to see the symptoms. So if it has been a couple of years, please go visit your doctor. Find out your B12 levels and make sure you take the, the required supplements. But yeah, that was our medical myth. Okay. Alright, and now it's time for everyone's favourite segment. I'm not going to lie, I have no idea if it is, but I've been calling it everyone's favourite segment um, since last season. And I don't care, I'm going to continue calling it that. But yeah, it's probably the easiest, I mean, I love this segment because it's very easy to research for. And um, it's very easy to set it up. So, um, for those of you new listeners, it's in fact Word of the Week. And to this week's word is halitosis, spelled H-A-L-I-T-O-S-I-S. And this is a fun quiz element of the podcast. Is it A, severe loss of hair, B, spasm of your lower limbs, C, bad breath? (laughs) I'm not going to include that bit. I'm going to use an actual theme song instead. All right. um. It is, in fact, not A not b it is c bad breath so now i guess you have um you have a word that is probably not going to be understood by most people so perhaps you can use it when other people are around if you and your mate which you should definitely recommend to listen to this podcast um yeah i don't know where i'm going with this but yeah anyways causes of halitosis is infections fasting smoking alcohol and many other reasons but yeah like i said it's just bad breath it's not it's not hard to get your head around Uh, most of us just have it when we wake up in the morning so yeah make sure you brush your teeth boys and girls not only good for you but it's just common etiquette okay i'm sure you guys already know this i think this podcast has gone for way too long already uh which is why i'm talking absolute rubbish not to say i haven't been talking already but i hope you guys enjoyed this week's podcast my gen i genuinely have it's been fun to come back start recording again 2020 start off something new make sure like i said tell your friends and family you can learn more fantastic words such as halitosis and yeah it's essentially an easy way for you guys to get your um fortnightly dose of um medical news and yeah hope you'll have a fantastic fortnight see you again in two weeks